Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we come to your word humbly, recognizing that it's not always easy to understand. And so we pray and we ask that you would give us uh, your special insight. Show us what we need to see this morning as we open the scriptures. Reveal yourself to us and in us. You are the God of every century of Christian that has ever lived. And we all depend on you. We look forward to a time of gathering in heaven. We look forward to a time of a new heaven and a new earth. And we see that in your scriptures today. We ask you to lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I almost feel like I should start off by apologizing as a Canadian for all the smoke, you know? It's, it's out there. However, we also take credit for the beautiful sunsets that you've been having this week, so, so there's that. I, I kept waiting to see somebody propose, we're going to build a wall to keep out the smoke. It's going to be the biggest, most beautiful wall you've ever seen. Nobody's ever built a wall like this before. And we're going to make the Canadians pay for it. You know, I kept waiting for that kind of a speech this week, but it never came. So I made it to myself. So <laughs> we are in a study of Revelation. We're uh, calling our series Famous Last Words. And today we're looking at what the scripture calls the end or the final wrath of God. And, and in our study of Revelation, we, we keep on bumping into these themes of God's judgment. And uh, we're going to look at judgment today in particular. In the vision that God gave to John through Jesus, um, we've seen something of what God's judgment will look like. Uh, it's been released, or at least in the vision, we've seen it released against rebellious and unrepentant humanity. Early in the book, uh, we read about a scroll in heaven. And that scroll was sealed with seven seals. And as each seal was opened by the Lamb, by Jesus, the scroll revealed a little bit more and a little bit more of its secrets. And as those seals are opened, we see that these are judgments, that there are judgments involved. And we see things like warfare and famine and death and even martyrdom for believers during this time of tribulation and testing. We see natural things happening like earthquakes and, and all kinds of other natural disasters. But in the middle of that great judgment, we also get a glimpse of heaven. And we see Jesus preserving for himself 144,000 of the people of Israel, specifically 12,000 from each tribe. And he does that to preserve a remnant. You know, you've probably run into remnant theology before. <clears throat> that is, the, what we see in Scripture is that God always preserves for himself a remnant. That's a group of faithful believers, and that's who this 144,000 people are. And in that same chapter, we see a great multitude of people, too many people to count. And they're standing before the throne of God, all dressed in white and all worshiping God. And we assume this is the Christians from every generation, all the generations of people who have believed in Jesus and received him as Lord and Savior and who look forward to being with him after death. Well, after that, there's a second judgment. We see seven seals first, and then we see seven trumpets. It's not trumpets that announce 
a series of more judgments. In, in, uh, in Israel, the shofar, which was made of a ram's horn, was used for a number of things. <clears throat> it was used often to announce a big event that was coming up or a special celebration or a festival. Uh, it was used to announce times of prayer at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. It was used on the watchtowers by the watchmen to sound a warning. And sometimes it was used to sound the advance in war. And here we, use, we see these trumpets blowing, seven of them. And after each trumpet sound, we hear the release of seven judgments and more devastation, more judgment on people who refuse to follow God and Jesus. Now, you'd think after two of these major judgments with seven parts each, there, there would be nothing left of the earth. But all of these judgments are only partial. They're only a step on the way to final judgment. So we see things like, you know, a third of the Earth's trees are destroyed, a third of the planet's resources, a third of the sea and all its creatures. And you look at this and you wonder, what, in the, what, what is this for? But the purpose of these judgments at this time in spiritual history is to bring people to a place of repentance and to choose to turn from their sins and to turn to God for salvation and life forever with him. That's the offer. But sadly, as we go through, we see that most people do not accept this offer and most people do not turn. I, I want to stress that even though the book talks about all these judgments, it tells us that God is leaving the door open for anyone to turn and follow him at any point and to be delivered from the judgments, at least up to a point. And we're going to talk about that point today. Today, I want to talk about the theme of chapters 15 and 16. And they have to do with, guess what? Judgment. More judgment. Cheery stuff. God's wrath and God's judgment. And you might wonder to yourself, well, what is all this judgment about? I mean, okay, we get the point about hopefully seeing people as a result of it coming to know Jesus. But, but there's so much of it. Well, today it has to do with God's wrath. And um, we read a little bit about God's wrath last week. We read, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. Uh, we've seen two examples of wrath before this, the seals and the trumpets, but now it says this is God's final wrath. It says, with this, God's wrath is completed. Well, what is wrath exactly? You know, we've heard that down through many, many, many years of revival preaching. We've heard about the wrath of God. What is wrath? Well, the, the technical definition is wrath is an emotional response to wrong and injustice. That's all well and good, but there's a lot more to it than that. Wrath has to do with very powerful anger. And uh, in the Bible, it's God's powerful anger that we're talking about. So that begs the question, what is God so angry about? If this is God's anger, not going back. Let's go back. What is God so angry about? God's anger is, I think, something that people don't understand a lot when they 
read the Bible for the first time and they're going through the Old Testament and they see God getting angry in different spots, there are a couple of places, uh, well, more than a couple, where God's anger is very close to the surface. Uh, we see God's anger out in the open, like when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so evil. Or we see God's anger out in the surface again when he starts bringing judgment by a flood over the entire earth to wipe out most of the humans and start again because humanity had become so entirely wicked. God's anger is what we hear about sometimes from the outside of the church before we come in. And, and sometimes, to be honest, I, God's anger seems to keep people away. They're afraid to seek God because who wants to talk to an angry God? But why does God get so angry? Isn't God supposed to be the God of love? First of all, we need to point out that God isn't angry all the time. John 3.16 reminds us of God's love. I mean, that he loves us so much that he sent his only son for us. And you know, even when God is angry at our sin, he still loves us. Love and anger are not mutually exclusive things. God created us to bring glory to himself, to reflect him, to look like him, to act like him, so that just by looking at us, others should be able to understand more about God. That's why he created us in his image, to reflect him. And you know, in the beginning, humans had direct fellowship with him. You know, in some ways that we don't fully understand, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning. Now, that's something really precious. And there was face-to-face -face relationship. And you know, humans had a job. They had a job to take care of the animals that God had created and to take care of the garden. And that, my friends, is good theology on why gardening is special. At least that's my theory. That's not here in the scripture, but that's my theory. But you know, all of that beautiful scenario that God created, it all came to a grinding halt when Satan came on the scene and convinced first man and woman to disobey God. And that disobedience is called sin, rebellion. Humans started thinking, well, you know, we can get along in this life without the God who created this life and everything in it. It's a little strange to think about that. In fact, even that life that God created is, is taken from humanity because of that first sin. God created us to live forever in his presence. And sin meant losing the garden where they had everything, including eternal life. And as they lost the garden, they lost life itself, and they eventually died. You know, the further you go in human history, and you can do this as an experiment the next time you're reading through the Bible, you'll, you'll see that the communication with God gets less and less and less as time goes on. And so we, we find ourselves having less and less direct communication with God, and it kind of narrows until you get to that point where Jesus comes. And then that communication with God is opened up again, and we go in the other direction. You know, sin means to miss the mark. That's what it means. 
It's like when you're shooting at a target and you not only miss the bullseye, you miss the target entirely. Another way to look at sin is you can think of, you know, maybe you're going on a hike up on the AT, up on the trail. And, and as you're along there, there's a... Stephen King actually wrote a great story about this, about a young lady who was hiking on the trail with her parents. It's called The Man Who Loved Tom Gordon. And, and as she's walking along with her family, she needs to stop and use the outdoor version of the bathroom. And she steps off the trail for a moment and it gets completely turned around. And within minutes, she's lost and lost for days and days. Now, that has happened on the trail before. It's an amazing story, actually. You know, not the typical horror stuff that you read from Stephen King, but, but it, it, it really demonstrates well this idea of us getting off the path. God puts us on a path, and it's easy to get off the path sometimes. And not only that, but get entirely lost in the woods. And that really helps us understand our relationship with God. You know, sin takes us away from the God who loves us. And we want to know what God's anger is about. We have to look to God's love. We have to look to God's righteousness. And we have to look to God's justice because they're all connected. And I know I'm repeating myself a little bit today from previous weeks, but, you know, this is really important. God's righteousness and his justice are connected. Sin is not right. And it's created a distance in our relationship with God that wasn't intended to be there from the beginning. God is a holy and a righteous being. And the more we sin, the more unlike God we get. Because of the first fall of our parents in sin, Every single human being who was born after that has kind of a magnetic attraction to sin, what the scriptures call the sin nature. And as a result, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one single one of us is righteous, not even one. We weren't created to follow sin. We were created to follow God. And the more steeped in sin we get, the less we reflect God. And God isn't seen through us as well. And so, what does God do? God invites us to walk with him in righteousness. And, and you know, he did this in the Old Testament. He, he chose a people through whom he was going to reveal himself to the world. And the people of Israel had a very special relationship with God, but they also had a very special role with God to be that reflection of God. And they received this invitation to, to walk with God, and you know that invitation was for everybody. Um, nobody was left out. I think sometimes we get the impression, oh no, that was for the Jews, they're God's chosen people and nobody else is. But that's not true at all. The outsider, the stranger, the foreigner, the refugee, they were to be welcomed into their midst. Even the temple, it has a special court called the Court of the Gentiles. 
It was there so that people who were not born a Jew were able to come and worship God freely and to follow him. That's why Jesus gets so angry on Easter week when he comes down from the, from the mountain, he comes into town and he sees what's going on in the temple because what's going on is happening in the court of the Gentiles. And they've set up stalls and they're selling doves for sacrifice and they're exchanging, you know, pagan money for temple money and, and they're taking advantage of people. And, and Jesus is very angry because this is supposed to be a place of prayer and worship, a place of connection for those who, who weren't born into this. And they were making it a mockery. They were desecrating it. We sometimes, I think, get the impression that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. You know, well, we've got this angry, vengeful God in the Old Testament, but when we get to the New Testament, God is all love and shiny. You know? God 2.0. Almost a different God than we began with, and, and that isn't true at all. Do you know that God loves those people and loved those people in the Old Testament just the way he loves us? Even when they sinned and turned against him, which they did over and over again, God still loved them, and he still called them to himself. But so many times, over and over again, they refused to walk in his way. And then, at exactly the right moment in history, God sent his son Jesus to make the relationship that was lost there again, to restore it, to make things right. He came to redeem them because they'd lost their way. And Jesus died on a cross for the sin of humanity. His blood was the price to be paid, the ultimate sacrifice. But it, it brought rightness to human beings. God did his work to repair the relationship. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus being put to death, also put to death the law of sin and death. His death made sure that we don't have to die. We're not chained to death anymore. We can have eternal life. And our sins can be forgiven. And they can be wiped out as if they never happened. This is God's way of doing justice. They call this being justified when something that should be held against us is forgiven. And we're released. Our relationship with him can be made whole again. And we can have full fellowship with God through Jesus. That separation between us and God, that gets erased. And one day, just like he intended in the beginning, we'll have the opportunity of standing and speaking with him face to face. That's the promise. So, what does all this have to do with judgment in the book of Revelation? <laughs> we've gone around in a bit of a circle, but let me bring it back. God's judgment, as we've seen it now, as, as we're seeing it now in Revelation chapters 15 and 16, his final judgment, this outpouring of his wrath, is his final word. It's his final response. It results in the pouring out of this wrath. And God is saying through this, no more. No more. We're done. 
This is the last time. This is my final offer of redemption. The persecution ends here. The blasphemy ends here. The pride, the arrogance, the worship of other gods, it all ends right now. This is the final judgment. Now, back in in Revelation chapter 6, we saw a number of these people who were persecuted the martyrs for the Christian faith who had died for their faith, they were standing in the throne room of God, and they had a complaint. Their complaint was, How long, Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell in the earth? Doesn't it seem sometimes like there are people who just seem to get away with everything? You know, there are people who, you know, no matter what they do, they don't get caught, Or if they get punished, they get very little punishment. You know, it just seems like there are so many who get away with it. And and here it's talking about, here's a group of people who have been killed because of their faith. They've been martyred, and they're standing in heaven before the throne, and they're pleading their case and saying, God, justice, bring justice. Bring righteousness back. There's something out of balance here that needs to be restored. It needs to be repaired, and you're the only one who can do that. When we come to Revelation 15 and 16, this outpouring of God's wrath, and that's God's answer to this plea. Wrath is God's answer to sin and to rebellion and to injustice, the corruption of innocence, because This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Humanity is so violent and lost, and they don't even know it. So with judgment, justice is served, and order is being restored. And so he says that the time has come. And let me just read you what that says in Revelation 15. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you might want to read along from verses 5 through 8. It says, After this, and after this is talking about after this little worship time we talked about last week, after this, I looked and I saw in heaven in the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. And out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. These are probably the bowls in which the special incense, the special offerings were presented to God. And there is a relationship there. You know, we think of God's wrath. We almost think of God's wrath as something, you know, something bad, something evil. But it's something holy. It's God's response. And out of the temple come these bowls filled with God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment. And it says that these bowls contain plagues similar to what we saw when we go back to you know, the Exodus and the story of Moses and Moses pleading before Pharaoh and Pharaoh refuses over and over again to release the people. 
And so God brings these judgments, these plagues on the people until finally Pharaoh relents and lets them go. And we have a similar kind of thing happening here. You know, um, terrible sores on the body of those who have the mark of the beast and worship its image. And it says the sea turns to blood and everything in the sea died. Remember, before the judgments were only partial, but now they're total. This is the end. It's permanent. The rivers and springs of water turn to blood. Verse 5 says, and, and this is part we need to really pay attention to. Verse 5 says, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You are who you are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The people receiving the, ju the judgments had made their own choices. You know, we often talk about, you know, well, how can a holy God, how can a loving God send someone to hell? But I think over and over, Revelation shows us that it's not the holy God who sends people to hell. It's the people themselves who make the decision to go. And that's the very sad thing about it. They had opportunity here to repent. They had opportunity to turn to God, but they did not. You know, and a plague comes, it says, intense heat from the sun. And, and it says here, they were seared by the intense heat and they... They didn't respond to God. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and to glorify him. They still had a chance, but they refused. And then if we move on to verses 10 and 11, it says, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people nodded their tongues in agony and Cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. God didn't take away their decision-making ability. He didn't take away their free will. He gave them the opportunity to turn, and yet they did not. Now remember, this hasn't taken place yet. We're looking into the future in this particular piece, right? God's final judgment hasn't come yet. But here we see pride and arrogance that's so high and so stubborn that they refuse to repent and turn to God even in the face of suffering and death. And you'll notice that, that woven through this are references back to what we talked about with Rome and the people who took the mark of the beast and the people who refused to worship God but worship the beast. You know, we notice refer references all through this chapter. You're going to see when we, in a couple of weeks, when we come back and do some even harder chapters, uh, you'll notice that it's the same there. You'll see these same references woven throughout. Well, there's two more plagues here, and still they don't repent. And this sad, sad story continues until it has a really violent end. And here's how it ends. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Now, how did Jesus end his ministry on our behalf? 
last words, it is finished. Here is God's final, final plagues, final judgment, and he pronounces, it is done. And then there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. Does that remind you of anything? It sounds very much like what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. It says here, no earthquake like it was ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the earthquake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. Now, what does that mean? It means that there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. And from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. No place to go. No place to hide. When God's judgment finally comes. And you know, here we have the opportunity to repent and to be spared these plagues and, and they don't do it. It's kind of like you know, looking up in the sky and seeing a giant rock falling and you just stand there gawking at it, you know? We have the opportunity, but we don't take it. God's day of judgment is terrible. It's terrible. But in history, there must be a time when God says, enough. And there has to be a time when those who have caused so much misery receive judgment, because that's called justice. It has to take place. And God has a plan for humanity, and these things have to happen for that plan, for the new heaven and the new earth and this completely violence-free, pain-free life to take place. It's not going to happen unless this happens first. Justice and judgment first, and then restoration. So if this has to happen, why is it that God delays his coming? Why didn't they come now? I mean, the, the disciples obviously expected Jesus' return right there in the first century. And down through 2,000 years of Christian history, we've expected God's return to be imminent, Christ Jesus' return. Why hasn't it come? Why doesn't he get on with it? Why doesn't he get this over with? Why does he wait so long to judge the guilty? The answer to that starts in 2 Peter 3. This is a good chapter. You might want to do a devotional study on this. In 2 Peter 3, oops, here we go. Let's go back. It doesn't want to cooperate. So I'll read it. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 9, says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is waiting on purpose. Now, let me read to you what else it says in that chapter of 2 Peter 3. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. 
The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about destruction of heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That prophecy was given a long time before John wrote his piece. God waits because he wants as many people as possible to come to him, to turn to him and receive him as Lord and Savior. God is restraining his own judgment for the salvation of the world, for you and me. He calls his followers to live a holy and godly life so that we can be ready. He says here at one point, stay awake. He says, I come like a thief. You know the parable of the thief in the night. The warning that he's giving is that he can come at any hour of the day or night and nobody will know beforehand. It'll just happen. And our call is to be ready and waiting and anticipating his coming. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you not to wait. I urge you to receive him now. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that as we pray. As we pray, this is a good time to renew your covenant with God. Pray with me. Lord God, I thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who delivers us from judgment through the cross. And Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and that you were raised on the third day. And I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. Lead all of my life. Teach me to follow your path. Teach me to live for you always. Lord, forgive my sins and bring me to live with you forever when this life is through. I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, you may have noticed when I was reading through that I skipped a line. That line says that the kings of the earth were gathered together in a place called Armageddon. And so we're going to start in two weeks when we come back. We're going to start with Armageddon. That's where we're going to go.